0: Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. This week I'm telling you a story that dove deeper and deeper into a rabbit hole the further I dug into my research for it. And before we go any further, I do want to warn you. This is an episode where I'll be discussing some pretty gruesome details in depth and discussing sexual violence as well as death by suicide. I'll do my best to give forewarning before these topics go into detail, but Like I said, I just wanted to give you a warning. That said, from the jump, this case reeked of something being off, something not entirely adding up. But as more details have emerged over the years and as more clues lead to further connections, this story takes a turn for the truly sinister and will leave you with hashtag questions whose answers seem to reach all the way up to the upper echelons of the United States government. This week, I'm telling you the story of the mysterious death of Private First Class Lavina Johnson. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Of her life, Levina Johnson heard a constant refrain. You look like your daddy. You act like your daddy. You think like your daddy. It's a comparison Levina's father, Dr. John Johnson, agrees with himself. Quote, she talked about what an honor it was for her to be compared to me, something that people had done from the moment she came on this earth, her father later wrote. Levina had been born in Florissant, Missouri, and was the first daughter of Dr. John and Linda Johnson, effectively breaking up the boys' club that her three older brothers had been running up until then. Her younger sister, Lakesha would arrive later and round out the Johnson children into a happy and close-knit group of five. Linda was a homemaker, and Dr. Johnson, he was an Army veteran who had been working for the Department of the Army for close to 20 years in the early aughts. Linda had also actually served as an employee for the Army before focusing her time on raising their five children. It was her parents' service that inspired Lavina to make a choice that nobody had expected her to make in 2004. Growing up, Lavina had dreams of studying performing arts, becoming a movie producer, and entrenching herself in the entertainment industry. Her siblings joked about starting their own music production company to show the world their talents. But Lavina spoke constantly about wanting to turn the books her father had written into movies, And she thought that the best chance to realize those dreams was out on the West Coast, far away from their Midwest home in Missouri. However, leading up to her senior year of high school, Lavina became worried. She and her little sister, Lakesha would both be in college at the same time as the other. And she was concerned about the financial ramifications that that could have in her family. She later approached her father to tell him she had made a decision that would put Hollywood and film sets on the back burner for now. She was going to enlist in the army following in his footsteps in order to pay for her dream college experience in California. Immediately her parents, her whole family, actually, everyone was against the idea with the Johnson's worrying. Levina had been duped by the promises that military recruiters were known to peddle to naive high school students. Dr. Johnson even told Levina that while they had set aside enough money for both girls to go to college without worry, He was content to extend his time in the workforce to be able to pay for Lavina to go to college further away than they had anticipated. What Lavina's parents didn't know, though, was that she wasn't necessarily asking for their input. She'd already made up her mind that this was the path she was going to take. Over time, she was able to sway them to her side. She spoke of how enlisting would allow her to see the world while making her own money how she wanted to continue the family tradition of serving in the military. And that then in 2004 and in the beginning of the Iraq war, it felt like she had the perfect opportunity to do something good for her country. Lavina was a naturally upbeat and charming person. So it's not too hard to imagine how with her continuing to point out the positives of what her army experience could be like. She managed to calm her mother's fears and convince her father would have Great opportunity this would be for her, and like they say, if they only knew then what we know now. So it was in the spring of 2004 that Lavina graduated from Hazelwood Central High School and was shipped off to basic training at Fort Jackson in South Carolina. Almost immediately after she crossed the stage of Flipper Castle, when she graduated from basic training, her drill sergeants complimented how quote mentally strong Lavina was to her parents sharing that she had often been used as a role model and example for others in the program. It was exactly one year after she had graduated from high school and had finished basic training in May 2005 that Lavina was assigned to the 129th Corps Support Battalion for her first tour of duty, which took her across the world from her little Missouri town to Balad, Iraq. And eight weeks later, just eight days before her 20th birthday, Lavina Johnson would be dead. On July 19th, 2005, at around 7.30 a.m., Linda Johnson was getting ready to head downstairs when, as she stood on the main foyer stairway that had an overhanging balcony, something through the large window above the front door caught her eye. It was a soldier, and he was approaching their home, coming up the walk, taking the steps on their porch, She started calling, yelling for Dr. Johnson, saying that there was a soldier at their front door. The veteran and Dr. Johnson was immediately unnerved. Whatever it was this soldier was coming to tell them, Dr. Johnson said he, quote, knew something had happened to Lavina. He opened the door and after they had confirmed that they were indeed the Johnsons, the soldier announced, quote, I have a message for you from the Secretary of Defense. We regretfully inform you that this morning, your daughter, Levina L. Johnson, died of self-inflicted wounds. It didn't make sense. And it made even less sense when the soldier, as Dr. Johnson began asking him questions, made one particular comment. That comment about there being a self-inflicted wound, which he latched onto with both confusion and disbelief. To the soldier, he asked for clarification. You're telling me my daughter intentionally killed herself? Linda began sobbing, asking how it was possible that their daughter, who had just so excitedly chatted about coming home from Iraq for Christmas the day before, how was it possible she was gone? Of their conversation the day before, Linda said, quote, she was her normal, jubilant self. She talked about coming home and Christmas plans. She loved Christmas. She told me to make sure her father didn't start decorating until she got home. This was not a girl getting ready to harm herself. The soldier allegedly became defensive and he backtracked quickly, only then saying that Lavinia's death was, quote, being investigated since it appeared she, quote, died under distress. Two things happened with that simple exchange on that morning the Johnsons learned of their daughter's unexpected death. One, it became clear that whatever had happened wasn't clear. And two, the family, they immediately became suspicious. The next day, July 20th, what's known as one of the Army's casualty liaisons arrived next on their doorstep. The liaison is charged with helping the grieving family, keeping them up to date on information, assisting with funeral arrangements, things of that nature. One of the first issues the liaison discussed with the Johnsons his opinion that they should opt for a closed casket, which, like, What a fucking way to kick things off when you're supposed to be helping a grieving family. Dr. Johnson also found this odd until a few days later after the Army medical examiner, Dr. Ed Reedy, had finished his autopsy and the family had the opportunity to view Lavina's body before her funeral. They decided on an open casket despite the liaison's urging. So, though they were nervous at what they would see since they knew now it was believed that Lavina had shot herself, they gathered together for the viewing regardless, and they never could have prepared themselves for what they saw. As the family filed in, Dr. Johnson shared that after seeing her sister, Lakesha quote, went off on two army soldiers who were there. And honestly, I'm not sure if this is a protocol or a tradition of some sort, but I haven't been able to find out if these two were guarding in an official capacity or really what they were doing there if it wasn't on orders. And if it was on orders, Why? Lakesha, however, started yelling, quote, what did you do to my sister? And when Dr. Johnson approached the casket, he started to understand why. Though the army had arranged Lavina in such a way that the need for a closed casket wasn't necessary, it was clear that, once again, there was something severely wrong and off with the whole situation. There wasn't significant damage to her head or her face, as they had feared when the family heard Lavina had died by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Instead, other things were wrong. Wrong and not making sense with the story that they had been told. There was a black bruise still noticeable under one eye. Something seemed almost disfigured and just off with her nose. Her mouth was swollen. There were various abrasions on her face as well. But what struck Dr. Johnson as the strangest of all were her hands. Her white dress gloves had been glued to her hands. So it was there in that funeral home, gazing down at his daughter in a casket after they had just seen her off to her first service tour eight weeks prior, that Dr. Johnson made a decision. There was something the army wasn't telling them. So he was going to investigate for himself. Dr. Ed Reedy, the Army's medical examiner, had finished his autopsy of Lavina on July 22nd, but despite the casualty liaison swearing up and down, the Army would be most forthcoming and timely in sharing information with the family. The Johnsons didn't hear from Reedy until August 3rd. By that time, Dr. Johnson had a lot of questions, and as we're approaching some chit-chat with the ME here, I'd like to give a quick trigger warning for our upcoming talk about violent deaths. They were still waiting on paperwork and other documents to be sent their way, so Dr. Johnson approached the Emmy with a cursory list of questions he thought would start to bring the family some answers. Those questions went out the window, though, when Reedy shared his findings just straight off the bat. Lavinia's death was being ruled a suicide, as his examination had proven to him that she'd taken her M16 rifle, placed it in her mouth, and proceeded to pull the trigger. Dr. Johnson had served in the army and he worked within their department still. So his 25 years worth of knowledge kicked in almost immediately at hearing this. At the time of her death, Lavina was five foot one. An M16 rifle is 41 inches, just a little under four feet long. So how in the hell will Lavina have been able to shoot herself through the mouth when physics and simple laws of science declared that impossible? The gun itself was over half her size. There's no way her arms would have been long enough to reach the trigger. To that, Dr. Reedy simply answered, quote, Well, she managed. And plot Twist really, really, really sucks, if you haven't already guessed. Dr. Johnson then pointed out his daughter had been right-handed. It, again, would have been almost near impossible for her to have pulled the trigger with her dominant hand since despite the best efforts of those who assisted in preparing Lavinia's body for viewing, the gunshot wound was still noticeable, and it was on the left side of her head. At this, Reedy replied that, no, 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 Johnson was wrong. The gunshot wound they were seeing was an exit wound, and it certainly wasn't just on the left side of her head. It was still the back of her head, quote, depending on the angle you viewed it from. And again, it was an exit wound, definitely, totally, indubitably an exit wound. If you have to use the tricks of the light and angles to make medically sound conclusions, then you can head on over to the timeout square of the Monopoly Board of Life and don't you dare think about passing go and collecting 200 because what the fuck is this? Further to the question of what the fuck is going on with this gunshot wound? If Lavinia had actually used her rifle to complete suicide, how hadn't she suffered more physically destructive damage? For all the anomalies the family noticed during the viewing, Lavinia was, for the lack of a better phrase, more or less normal looking. There wasn't any truly disfiguring damage, as one would expect if one were to believe the good doctor's findings. To this, Eridi went back to stating, no, 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 no. The exit wound was what they had seen on the left side, but really it's the back of her head, and that was just damage enough. Any answers Dr. Johnson had hoped to gain from speaking with Reedy, well, their conversation led to simply more hashtag fucking questions instead. Dr. Johnson took these new questions to their casualty liaison on August 16th, pressing the officer for more information and more insight about what had happened to their daughter. The liaison shared what he had been told and what he had been told, didn't sit right at all with Dr. Johnson. He claimed that he'd been told, quote, the evidence of the scene was so messed up, it will take a year to straighten out. If you happen to look up any images of this case after hearing it today, I'm sure you'll stumble across a few images of Lavina's parents. Dr. Johnson is, by all accounts, a no-nonsense, doesn't-suffer-fools type, And he was quite finished at this point with the circles the army had been spinning them through for the last week or so. He explained to the liaison that he had been a GI in his youth. He had then moved on to working within the department of the army after his years of service. And not only that, he had earned his PhD while working with the army, and he was a trained psychologist with a specialty in behavioral psychology. And in regards, to the thrum of suspicion that had first begun when the Johnsons learned of their daughter's death, a suspicion that was only growing more incessant with each new questionable story about those events, and certainly after being told the army was about to take a year to decide what had happened to his daughter, Dr. Johnson had only one thing to say. Quote, I know you people very, very well. I think that's a phrase No one wants to hear coming from the mouth of an army-trained behavioral psychologist. The Johnsons, with Dr. Johnson at the helm, though, they were ready to find out what had really happened to Lavina. And it didn't take long for conflicting details about Lavina's death to start trickling in. In fact, the Johnsons began receiving information just days after they were told she had died. Their suspicions only heightened as Dr. Johnson began calling around to friends and family who had similar connections to the military. And one such friend clued him in that already the army wasn't sharing the full story with them. According to Dr. Johnson, in an NPR interview, this friend, quote, knew some people over there and, quote, he got an email that she was not found dead in her barracks. She was found dead in a contractor's tent. Remember, the army first told the Johnsons Lavina had been found in her barracks with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Just a day or two after learning about this, another relative confirmed the police officer friend's story. This relative had received a message from Iraq from some of Lavina's friends who confirmed that her body had been found in that contractor's tent. On September 19th, the Johnsons received files regarding Lavina's death, including black and white photos from her autopsy and the scene as it was when her body was found. The images themselves were disturbing, but even more disturbing were certain pieces of information tucked away into the documents and files. But first, let me hit you with the first and then the second story that the army tried to pass off to the Johnsons. Story number one. The army reported that Levina's death was, quote, the result of hostile action in combat, and that, quote, the circumstances were clearly in a line of duty. Hashtag fucking questions are abound with this one already. Lavina worked in the telecommunications realm, so she wasn't even seeing any action, and the area she was stationed in was relatively peaceful. One of the black and white photos in the pile of paperwork showed the manner in which Lavina's body was found. She was lying prone on the ground in a tent with her right arm across her face. So what hostile action or combat could she have been in? What line of duty could have killed her, and more to the point, how was she found alone if she was supposedly in combat? When the Johnsons started to argue back against this version of events, the Army presented story number two, where they claimed that Lavina was, quote, not mentally sound. This report, according to the LA Times, quoted three soldiers as saying Lavina seemed depressed and she spoke of suicide. They claim that, quote, she hated her life and wished she would die. Another soldier, and said Lavina, was, quote, upset over a breakup with a soldier she had met in the U.S., apparently just before deployment. Let's break this cavalcade of falsehoods down. For one, Lavina's company commander, Captain David Woods, had written in one file that Lavina was, quote, clearly happy and seemingly very healthy physically and emotionally. Another tally in the, quote, army is fucking lying about something column. Lavina's own commander is over here claiming she was happy and healthy. Also, two of the soldiers who came forward to say Lavina had spoken of suicide also, quote, said she told them that she was only joking and would never take her life. She didn't want to hurt her family, one soldier reported to the LA Times write-up. Still others refuted the idea the army put forth by saying she was, quote, a very positive person, a good soldier, a hard worker, And don't forget, Lavina had talked to her parents the day before she was found dead, talking excitedly about coming home for Christmas and how much she was looking forward to even just decorating the tree. Like Linda said, these didn't seem to be the words of a girl getting ready to harm herself. She even told her parents that she would aim to give them a call the very next day, but obviously she would never do so because it would be the day that she turned up dead. Some other higher-ups were claiming that she had been depressed and even spoke of ending her life because a mysterious boyfriend of two months had broken up with her over email. Okay, one, what, two. Also, who the hell is this boyfriend? As far as my research showed, the Johnson family knew nothing about this boyfriend and no name has ever been released. And isn't it strange Lavina allegedly just started dating this guy from the time she was deployed up until her death? At this, Dr. Johnson asked to see the army's psychological profile on Lavina because as a behavioral psychologist, he wanted to know how the army claimed to just know she had been depressed. And furthermore, if they had such concrete reason to believe she was depressed, what were they doing letting her walk around freely with a military rifle and continued access to other military weapons? How did they know with such certainty that Lavina was allegedly depressed? All the army provided as proof Lavina was suppressed, though. They, <laughs> I can't believe this, they claimed she had a change in her eating. She was eating ice cream three or four times a day in Iraq, where temperatures regularly top out at around 120 degrees. They also then claimed that she started smoking, which has never been confirmed by any other soldiers she was friendly with. And then they also claimed she was giving away possessions in the styling of braceless Pizza we covered a few weeks ago and which again has never been confirmed by the army beyond the army say so. Once again as we'll see throughout this whole case things weren't adding up they haven't added up from the get-go and they will continue to not add fucking up and one of the clearest examples of this skewed mathematics came as the biggest shock to the Johnsons because Hidden throughout the hundreds of details in the paperwork surrounding Lavina's death was one the Johnsons had never expected. Just 10 days before her death, Lavina had been diagnosed with condyloma, a sexually transmitted infection. It seemed to confirm her father's worst fears and cemented the belief he was slowly coming to hold true. Lavina hadn't taken her life, she had been murdered. And the army was covering it up. Not only that, but Dr. Johnson began to reckon with an additional idea. The army wasn't just covering up Lavina's death, they were covering up many many more deaths. The deaths of female soldiers who had been sexually assaulted and killed and the army was framing them as suicides in order to protect themselves. Violence against women is unfortunately one of the most commonly found threads that runs the length of human history's tapestry. It's also one of the most prevalent issues found in an institution that probably, I don't know, shouldn't be committing violence against their own employees, but here we fucking are. Again, I'm going to offer up a trigger warning because this part of today's case will deal deeply and heavily with violent topics. Let me hit you with a few stats. Lavina was the first Missourian woman to die in the Iraq war. Since the start of the Iraq war, there have been 25 quote suspicious deaths that occurred overseas to women serving in the military. Eight of those deaths have been classified as suicides. And throughout the military, all branches encompassing, one in three women will be raped during their time serving. Throughout the search for answers about what really happened to Lavina, something became abundantly clear. She was not the first service member to have died under suspicious circumstances that also had suggestions of sexual violence. But more than that, these incidents highlight something even more sinister, that the Army is all too willing to engage in cover-ups in order to protect the image of their integrity, which is pretty fucked up irony if you ask me. There was the infamous death of NFL star Pat Tillman, who died at the hands of Friendly Fire except the army spun stories of enemy fire for weeks before finally admitting he'd been shot by his own side. There is the open secret of Ford fucking Hood and its reputation as being one of the most violent bases throughout the military, with the terrifyingly large number of reported rape, sexual assault, and domestic violence incidents. The disappearance and death of Vanessa Guillen dragged Fort Hood into the national spotlight this summer but hers was by no means the first mysterious death there. Since April of this year, there have been eight equally suspicious deaths of military personnel on the base or in the surrounding Fort Hood community. In my opinion, Fort Hood has gotta go. Like something needs to give because even when soldiers deploy from Fort Hood, they're easily identified as such because of the violent tendencies that the Fort Hood reputation both precedes them with and that these soldiers live up to, that twisted stereotype. A large number of Fort Hood Hood soldiers in the early 2000s wound up at Camp Taji, and by 2008, eight women soldiers turned up dead, all of them from Fort Hood. Private First Class Tina Priest was among them. She arrived from Fort Hood to Camp Taji, but in February 2006, she was raped on base. She spoke with her mother daily and told her about the rape, how she'd reported it, and the processes she was undergoing in the aftermath. According to her mother, Tina was, quote, angry and embarrassed, but not depressed about what had happened to her. She was intent on seeing her rapist face justice and was actively pursuing those avenues to get that same justice. But by March 1st, 2008, Tina would be dead and the army would be claiming she had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound from her M16 rifle that she had placed in her mouth before discharging. Sound familiar? Tina's mother, Joy Priest, was much like Dr. Johnson, immediately suspicious of the story the army was trying to sell her, especially since they were barring even essential details about what had happened to her daughter from her. She filed a Freedom of Information Act and it was only then that she realized how on the mark her suspicions were she immediately sought out a second autopsy and had ballistics testing done as well because how in the world could her daughter have managed to pull the trigger of her m16 when she herself barely cleared five feet tall the ballistics testing only added further credence to Joy's suspicions it was physically impossible Tina have pulled the trigger in the way the army had suggested. So what did the army do? They, and I am not kidding, they actually went this route. They used the Kurt Cobain excuse and claimed she pulled the trigger with her big toe. The army is truly just the personification of self-assured white men. If nothing else, they do and only have the fucking audacity. Before the year was over, there would be more women found dead in suspicious circumstances. There was Private First Class Hannah McKinney, who was first said to have been run over while crossing the street to a latrine from the guard tower she was stationed at. Her crushed ribs, ruptured spleen, and the tired tread marks that marred her right side all alluded to the suggestion that she had been accidentally run over in the middle of the night. However, because there's always a however... In reality, a more senior sergeant claims he provided Hannah with contraband alcohol while she was on duty at the guard tower. They had sex, despite Hannah being married and planning a larger, nicer ceremony for when she was home in December. And allegedly, she just fell out of his Humvee. This sergeant, Shell, claims that though it was a possibility Hannah had gotten out of the car of her own accord, he also, quote, knew it was a possibility he had run her over. He admitted in a police statement later that he never even stopped to check. Her body was found by other service members just minutes later. Her clothes askew, one boot missing, and she had been left to die in the middle of the road. And what about Major Gloria Davis, who was found dead of an allegedly self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, just one day after giving a damning statement to an army investigator about corruption that was running rampant through the contracting relationships the military had. She had been accused of accepting a bribe of $225,000 from defense contractor Lee Dynamics, but according to Gloria's mother, not a dime of that 225,000 has ever been found. She also noted that, wasn't it odd That the gunshot wound was on the left side of Gloria's head when she was actually right-handed. All of these women and all of their deaths raise serious hashtag questions about what is going on in the Army and its treatment of women soldiers. Was Tina Priest killed in retaliation for reporting her rapist? Was Hannah McKinney's death really as much of an accident as Sergeant Shell claimed? Who would benefit from Gloria Davis being dead and silencing her from bringing more information forward about defense contracting corruption? These are questions and stories that Dr. Johnson would come to be familiar with throughout his own search for answers about what really happened to Lavina because it was becoming increasingly clear that with whatever had happened to Lavina, the army was lying. Though Levina died in 2005, it would take until 2007 for the Johnsons to receive further evidence that something was afoot with the circumstances of Levina's death. In the two years since Levina had died, only minimal amounts of details trickled out of the Army's grasp. Her parents learned that on the late afternoon of July 18th, the day leading into her death, Levina had finished work for the day around 4 or 5 p.m., but she had missed her PT appointment. Instead, she spent the rest of the day hanging out with a soldier she was close with, hanging out in his barracks for several hours. That night, the two walked over to the on-base convenience store, where she bought some M&Ms and a six-pack of soda. Her friend then left and returned to his own barracks. At some point, right after this, at eleven forty-five p.m., Lavina allegedly walked into a tent that was designated for the KBR contractors, somewhere soldiers weren't actually allowed to be. She found a convenient bench to sit on she allegedly held the printed out emails from this mysterious boyfriend in her hand and then found some sort of accelerant and set the papers on fire the army then said that at this point she stuck her m16 in her mouth and pulled the trigger her body would be found at 1 20 a.m on july 19th in a tent filled with smoke and soot from the burned papers and in a scene that was compromised to hell and back These details, as they trickled out, simply gave Dr. Johnson more pause in asking his own hashtag questions. So much so, he began relying on filling out countless FOIA acts, requests. In one of these requests, which often resulted in piles of paperwork, Dr. Johnson noticed something odd. Someone had Xerox a copy of a CD in the midst of the other papers. Just a black and white photo of a CD. So what did it mean? And what was the importance of the CD? What did it have to do with Lavina? To Dr. Johnson, it seemed clear that the CD had purposely been included in one of his FOIA requests. And it seemed equally clear that the CD proved the existence of more evidence in Lavina's case, evidence the army hadn't shared with them. Obviously, Dr. Johnson turned around and asked for a copy of the CD itself. And classically, the army refused claiming that sharing the contents of the CD would violate privacy rights. The Johnsons came right back and essentially said to hell with your privacy rights, because if the contents of the CD identified, quote, participants party to Levina's death, then the Johnsons were entitled to their names. At this, the army pulled an even shadier move, and they told the Johnsons that they would have to speak to their lawyer. Dr. Johnson did them one better, though. He went to his own congressman representative Lacey Clay who just so happened to be on the committee of oversight and government reform and who just so happened to be the ranking member heading up the Pat Tillman and Jessica Lynch hearings which directly related to misleading information from the battlefield. Clay sided with the Johnsons and not just because they were his constituents He was tired of the liberties the military was taking to clean up or sweep away anything that made the death of any soldier look suspicious. He even told Dr. Johnson that he was, quote, surprised by the holes in the Army's story, and he agreed to champion the family during the upcoming meeting. It was during these hearings that Clay took ranking military personnel extremely to task, essentially putting them on blast on national TV by asking them how they intended to cooperate with not only the Tillman and Lynch families, but also with the Johnson family. Brigadier General Rodney Johnson was straight up squirming in his seat during this and claimed that, oh no, he had no idea about the FOIA requests Dr. Johnson had repeatedly sent, but that he and his office would be happy to help once they got those requests. Interesting that, since immediately after the hearing, he turned right around and told Clay's staff that the family wasn't entitled, that's a direct quote, to jack shit. That's not a direct quote, that's me. Until the army was literally ordered to turn over the CD. And it was then the Johnsons learned truly horrifying truths because on the CD were color photos and these photos confirmed the nightmares the Johnsons hadn't even known they should be afraid of hadn't even known that they should have expected any of this to happen to their daughter. It's here, obviously, I'm going to drop a trigger warning because the photos I'm going to describe to you are honestly, they're disturbing. On the CD were photos from when Lavina's body had been discovered and also of her autopsy by the Army ME. And while pictures say a thousand words, the colorized and realistic photos that had been kept hidden from the Johnsons they screamed because it was clear that the story the army had been singing about Lavinia taking her own life by a gunshot head wasn't even close to being true. The true extent of Levina's injuries were highlighted with the color photos and they painted an even more in-depth picture of the scene in the tent. There was a blood trail outside of the tent. She'd been found fully clothed, so why was there debris all over her back? The shell casing of the bullet that allegedly killed her lay right under her right thigh, but the bullet itself was never recovered. There was a bloody footprint leaning out of the tent. The matches used to allegedly light the printed emails from her boyfriend, as well as the M16 itself, had seemingly been wiped clean. Not that it mattered, because no DNA testing had ever been done. And no one ever bothered to come up with an explanation about why the M16 Lovina allegedly used wasn't even registered to her. Let me make that really fucking clear. The M16 found with her body, the one who allegedly was used to kill her, was not her own. It was with the autopsy photos that Dr. Johnson noticed abrasions on her face, burns, scratches, and bruises scattered all over her body. Her nose had been broken like they'd suspected, And the army had performed plastic surgery on it before her body arrived back in the States, no doubt to prevent more questions from being asked. There were bite marks on her chest. Her lips were bruised and swollen. Some of her teeth had been knocked out and shoved back in. Most disturbingly of all, though, it was clear that there had been some sort of sexual assault because lye or another corrosive chemical had been poured in and on Lavina's vagina. And none of this had been mentioned anywhere in Dr. Reedy's report. Almost immediately, the Johnsons opted to exhume Lavina's body and have a second autopsy performed by a Dr. Michael Graham. John O'Manion and Cyril Wecht also played a role and claimed that the wound on the left side of Lavina's head couldn't have been made by an M16. It was more likely caused by a smaller, nine millimeter pistol. During the second autopsy, it was discovered that LaVina's neck had been broken, and for reasons or even indications that, again, were left out of the original autopsy report, part of LaVina's tongue, vagina, and anus had been removed. The family was obviously absolutely horrified, and they began to push even harder for answers from the army by approaching the media and another member of Congress who represented them, Representative Ike Skelton. After meeting with Dr. Johnson in April, 2008, who presented him with all the information he had collected over the years, including the names of nine other women who had died under mysterious circumstances while serving. Skelton told the family he would help them seek answers and justice for Lavinia by organizing a congressional investigation. However, because again, there's always, and however, he changed his own tune and Skelton began singing one that was eerily similar to the Army's, a tune he had picked up after he and his subcommittee had been, quote, briefed by military personnel about the matter. Dr. Johnson spoke out about this fucking switcheroo, claiming that, quote, whoever is behind this must have significant prestige or rank, obviously implying that prestige and rank were being utilized to keep the lid on the Venus case screwed as tightly shut as possible. Skelton responded by saying that, no, sorry, quote, the Army's decision was correct, that it was a suicide, and he promptly shut down any further movement on instigating a congressional investigation into Levina's death. To that, Dr. Johnson had only one thing to say back in 2008 it will be a cold day in hell before I stop searching for answers. Before we get into the hashtag questions, and there are a lot, obviously. One that's been percolating throughout my brain during my research is the question of why? What could someone's motive have been to kill Lavina? There's the suggestion that she was sexually assaulted or raped during her time in Iraq, which would explain the diagnosis of the STI she received 10 days before her death. And obviously, given the amount of women soldiers who have been killed after being assaulted while on duty, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that could be a driving force for someone. However, there was an interesting whisper of a theory I came across in my research. One that is really steeped in all of the allegedly, supposedly hypothetically speakings I can throw out in order to practice CYA. And it's one that's more sinister than anyone would hope to find in our own military. Now, fair warning I'm not going to out-and-out out name this individual because I value my life too much, and I myself don't want to wind up mysteriously dead. Allegedly, there was a general on Levina's base who was strangely fired on August 8, 2005, barely three weeks after Levina's death. Ariana Huffington of the Huffington Post actually reported on it and pointed out how strange it was that this high-ranking official had been fired only three months before he was set to retire. Strange how that very name of this general was later found scrawled into Levina's personal journal. There had been whispers about this married commander having carried on with an affair between himself and a defense contractor, one that he refused to end even after the fucking Pentagon ordered him to. It's been proposed that his refusal to end his affair was the reason behind his firing, because the reason for being relieved of his duty was quote, disobeying a lawful order. And it almost seems like a punishment that doesn't quite match the crime, especially after the guilty party had served for 36 years. You have to be hard pressed to fire someone for disobeying an order after 36 years. As the theory goes, is it possible Lavinia discovered the general engaging in his affairs still? And the general, knowing he was directly defying orders, panicked and in a fit of rage or self-preservation, killed her? Killed another soldier to cover up his own misdeeds because he knew what could happen if the Pentagon had found out he hadn't obeyed orders? Self-preservation can drive us all to do things we never expected of ourselves. And when the lives that we've built and created for ourselves are threatened or at risk, I don't think it's too crazy to imagine that there are people out there who would kill for their most damning secrets to remain hidden. And that said, I think it's time we start to ask ourselves some hashtag fucking questions. Hashtag question number one. What really happened to Lavina Johnson on the night of July 18th before her body was discovered at 1.20 a.m. on July 19th? How did no one hear the gun that allegedly killed her go off? I say this as somebody who has not served, but I find it odd because the area Lavina was stationed at, it was relatively peaceful. So nobody thought to go investigate a random gunshot in the middle of the night. Who was the mysterious boyfriend the army was so hell bent on saying cause Lavina to enter a depression? Were the burned papers found in the contractor's tent near her bed really emails from this boyfriend and if so what did they say and if they weren't what were they lavina didn't suffer the facial injuries one would expect after allegedly putting an m16 gun in their mouth and firing because she didn't have those injuries is that why the army tried to insist the family have a closed casket why were lavina's dress gloves glued to her hands for her burial and who glued them did the army really think the family wouldn't have realized the odd positioning of the gunshot exit wound in comparison to the fact Lavina was right-handed. Why did the army's ME Dr. Reedy do a rape test during his autopsy? Why didn't the good Dr. Reedy try to collect any residual DNA like from under Lavina's fingernails? How did Lavina contract condyloma? Who was the soldier Lavina spent her final hours with and what did they know? Why was Lavina's back covered with dirt and debris when her body was found? If she had just simply fallen after shooting herself, that doesn't seem, that doesn't add up. So, what is that about? How did she get bite marks on her chest? And were the dental imprints ever tested against dental records? Was the lie that was allegedly poured on and in Lavina's vagina done so? In order to destroy any potential evidence of her being raped before her death, why were parts of Lavina's tongue, vagina, and anus removed? Was this another measure to destroy any DNA evidence, evidence of a rape or sexual assault? How did Lavina's neck come to be broken? Who broke her neck? Where the fuck would you even find a lie on an army base in the middle of Iraq? That's bothering me. What's the deal with the blood trail outside of the tent? Like, seriously, what is that about? That too is bothering me a lot. Is the blood trail an indication Lavina was attacked elsewhere and her body was then dragged to this tent? What happened to the bullet that allegedly killed her and why has it never been found? How does the army explain the fact the shell casing wound up underneath Lavina's right thigh? It would have had to do a 180 degree turn or whatever in order for the story to make a modicum of sense. So, please, Army, explain that to me. Actually, don't, I'm scared of you. Why was no DNA testing done at all? Was the inclusion of the Xerox CD in one of Dr. Johnson's FOIA requests an accident? Or was it from someone trying to push the Johnsons in the right direction of digging for more answers? What was Ike Skelton and his subcommittee told by the Army that put them off from helping the Johnsons seek a congressional investigation into Levina's death? Why did Lavina have the name of the particular general we discussed written in her journal? Did he have something to do with her death? And finally, who was issued M16 number 7095028? Because it certainly wasn't Lavina. I haven't been intending to pick cases whose anniversaries line up with new episodes, but maybe. I'm going to just take that as some sort of sign that they are stories that desperately need to be told. I say that because yesterday, and you'll be hearing this, July 19th, the day before this episode drops, marks 15 years since that soldier walked onto the Johnson family's porch and upended their lives entirely. It's been 15 years since the bubbly, charismatic daughter, who dreamed of turning her father's books into movies, was savagely assaulted, violated, and killed. It's the shame of our military and government that too many of our female soldiers have stories far too similar to Levina's. Stories of rape, of disrespect, of violation, of being murdered at the hands of the very people who are supposed to protect their own. The Johnsons are still fighting for Levina's story to be told in order for both answers and justice to be found. I'll be sharing a link to a petition for Congress to open an official investigation into what happened to Private First Class Levina Johnson. Our country is supposed to stand for liberty and justice for all. And if a woman like Lavina died while serving to protect the liberties so many of us take for granted, we don't have answers. There's no justice here. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you all. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to two of the newest members of the DA Patreon crew. Kate Sewell, one of my truest true crime gal pals, and Charlotte Torba. Your support truly means the world. So thank you for keeping the figurative da lights on. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at dark as hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at dark as hell Pod, again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the Dot Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. I actually dropped the first Patreon reward for Dot Spooky Crew last week, which was an exclusive access to an extra episode every month that focuses on a tale of a ghostly nature. And this month's story was about the lost colonists of Roanoke. Truly, you don't want to miss this and so you can come be a part of the spooky crew by joining up at patreon.com slash hell podcast thanks again for listening and i will catch you back here next week with another story ready to get dark as hell all over again <laughs>